Hello, my friend. Promises made, promises kept. We are about to listen to episode nine of Outliers here on Adrenaline on Realm. I yet remain your host, Neil Helligers. Good to be in your presence again. Um, when last we left Michael, now let's just call him boy. I don't like Michael. He was detailing how he can listen to all sorts of music. He can read all kinds of pre-approved books and watch approved DVD movies. But the one thing he does not have access to is this word from our sponsor. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. By which, of course, I mean the internet. They're not allowing him to see the internet or live television because they don't want him to know what uh, is going on out there after the change, I suppose, would be the reason. And I know that's sort of a condition of his imprisonment. He is actually a prisoner, even if they're giving him, like, uh, fresh blue jeans or what have you. Um, but the other thing that they did mention that he is getting a 401k. So you know you're really a prisoner when you get a 401k, but no means whatsoever to decide how to appropriately invest it. I mean, who are the real monsters here? Am I right? Anyway, let's get into episode nine of Outliers, the penultimate episode of this season, and always a good reason for me to use the word penultimate. Enjoy. Eleven weeks plus four days, or 81 days, a little more than the time span of Jules Verne's fantastical tale of Phileas Fogg's circumnavigation of the globe. A lot longer than Nellie Bly's 10-day-long lockdown in a madhouse. Like I said, I'm neither stupid nor illiterate. I read widely growing up. Did I mention that the abandoned public libraries were my favorite place to visit when Don and I went out scavenging? They were. Right up there with combing through the contents of the building supply store on the highway. I never did take any library books out of the libraries, though. It didn't seem right. They were there for everyone to read not for me to squirrel away in my private Quonset hut book collection. As a boy, I naively believed everybody might come back. The humans I read about. The people who'd lived there once. Especially the kids. We could grow up together. We'd be playmates and schoolmates. Friends and companions. Better than an old skull in a woodpile. Don never contradicted me. But when I chattered enthusiastically about all the people returning one day, his smile turned sad. I've come to accept something. 
I still got good memories of Da, of our life together. Not going to let what he told me at the end of his life destroy the rose-colored lens through which I view my boyhood. Not even after what I learned from Dr. Roland last week. That still feels like a steel-toed boot kick to the gut. I am required to talk to Dr. Roland twice weekly for about an hour or two at a time. She calls our time together therapy sessions, which are supposedly to help me adjust to my new circumstances and situation. That's what she claims. I suspect her true objective is to scrape the bottom of my memory barrel, to make sure that she, along with all the government and military interrogators I've sat across the table from these past weeks, has gotten all the information from me that I have to give, that they've drained me dry. I know it's not me that interests them. It's Da, Dr. Edward Allen Sanborn. Whether he's considered a monster or a hero, I can't tell. They keep their opinions to themselves. I'm being systematically debriefed by those who consider memory plumbing their life's work, mostly in pairs. Men and women in suits. Men and women in uniform. Sometimes they adopt the role of good cop, bad cop. Sometimes one is silent while the other does all the talking. I've told them all everything, again and again. Everything but my original purposeful omissions. Those are buried, as deep as treasure. Or bodies. Anyone who wants to interview me, I'm game. Happy to help, that's me. Or the me persona that presents as a grinning fool. The lie detector needle never spikes. The interviewers and the interrogators come and go. Dr. Roland is the one fixed star in my galaxy. I've led her to believe that she and I have developed a relationship. That I've come to trust her completely. That I look forward to our time together. That I consider her a friend. Even a maternal figure. That we have no secrets. The truth is otherwise. I know I'm a research project to her. She'll probably write a journal article about me one day. But as long as she thinks we've bonded, I figure I won't be subjected to other means to get me to talk. Like electric shock therapy. Or waterboarding. Or whatever torture methods they're using on status 3 outliers to cause them to howl like banshees in agony in the night. She's even given me a small pager that I can use to summon her anytime, day or night, if I remember something important. I haven't used it yet, but I told her how grateful I am to be given this lifeline. I'm not lying either. I figure it will come in handy one day very soon. She always begins our sessions with the same two inane questions. So how are you doing, Michael? And, you settling in all right? I answer both in the affirmative, and enthuse about the music I'm listening to, or the movies I've watched, or the weed whacker motor I'm refurbishing, or the success of some other handyman project. Then she asked me about what I remember, about my time with Da, casually, like an afterthought. But this time she gets right to the point. She says, did Da ever tell you any details about the car accident that killed your parents? I stare at her, open mouthed before I regain my composure and manage to look puzzled. Only that he found me in my car seat in the wreck and took me with him. I told you all that, didn't I? Yes. Yes, you did. But you remember no details about the accident itself. I shook my head. My bewilderment was genuine. She delivered the next bit of information matter-of-factly, like an uncushioned blow to the kidneys. It was Dr. Sanborn who was driving the other vehicle, the one that broadsided your parents' car. My chest got tight, as if the skin across my torso was shrinking like fresh-killed deer skin left to dry in the sun. I hated her in that moment, in the way I hated Da when he told me what he'd done. She had unknowingly revealed herself, revealed her capacity for cruelty, in the same way he had. She went on in the same emotionless tone. He had stolen a jeep from a state trooper, 
who had left it running at the side of the road while she went to assist a motorist who had driven off the verge and got stuck in a snowbank. At the time of the accident, Dr. Sanborn was speeding, driving a stolen vehicle. The roads were icy. He blew through a stop sign and broadsided your parents' car, completely crushing the driver's side and sending it spinning 20 feet from the intersection. He never told me that. My origin story always started with him looking in the back seat of a wrecked car and seeing the mewling infant in the car seat. I could feel my Adam's apple bobbing in my throat. Her bright eyes fixated on the physiological signs of my agitation, but this time I couldn't hide what I was feeling. They were both killed instantly, I managed to say. A faint smile tugged at her lips. She had me where she wanted me. She slipped a stapled set of papers from a file she had sitting in front of her on the table. On the first page was a crude diagram of a human body. Someone had hand-drawn slash marks. Wounds, injuries, several fatal. A printout of an old autopsy report. Your mother was killed instantly, yes. When she was catapulted through the windshield, a sheared-off strip of metal from the hood severed her carotid artery. She bled out in seconds. Her neck was broken as well when she struck the pavement. Her voice was cold. Aiming, I thought, for maximum shock value so she could observe my reaction. I couldn't hide my pain, so I didn't try. His chest was crushed by the steering column, I managed to blurt out. Not crushed. Your father was pinned in the wreckage and had multiple contusions and fractures, but none that would have proved to be fatal. She paused. It was this dramatic pause that made me certain beyond any shred of doubt that she cared only about the information I could potentially provide about Edward Allen Sanborn, not about the psychological well-being of the orphaned boy under her supervision. It's here, in the autopsy report, Michael, in black and white. Take a look if you want to. Your father died of exposure. Basically, froze to death in the car, pinned behind the steering wheel. His wife's dead body sprawled across the road, invisible from where he sat. His infant son whimpering in the back seat. He couldn't move. He couldn't try to save her. He couldn't get to you. It took him hours to die. He would have seen a stranger remove you from your car seat. And there was nothing he could do to stop it. Wife dead. Infant son taken while he's completely immobilized. Freezing to death. What a dreadful way to die, don't you think? She leaned forward so she could place a consoling hand on my forearm. Your da did that. Is that the kind of man whose memory you really want to protect? I bolted out of the room. She didn't follow. I vomited in a trash can in the outdoor corridor, both hands braced on the dented rim to keep my legs from collapsing. The same projectile purging that happened when Dodd told me who he was and what he'd done. That dog caused the car accident didn't surprise me. He was fleeing, trying to escape. I would never have left the other driver if I knew he was still alive but I wouldn't have manufactured a bioweapon that would kill millions either. Dodd did take me along with him. An act of compassion? An act of penance? I don't know. Because he didn't want to be alone? Most likely. I could admit that to myself now. Dr. Rowland came outside then. She gently stroked the back of my head. Then she held out something in her palm. Do you know what this is, Michael? I looked at it. Three inches long. Hard plastic black and red. VTB embossed. I wiped my mouth on the back of my hand before I answered her. I've seen those before. Around computers in abandoned houses. Even on cell racks and gas stations. They're called memory sticks. Or flash drives or sometimes thumb drives. Okay. They were used to store information taken from computers. 
I told you before, Dr. Roland. Computers didn't work anymore where I came from. Did Da have one of these? Did you ever see one in his possession? Think, Michael. It's important. A frisson of fear shot down my spine, like ice water sprayed on bare skin. Yes. As a matter of fact, I had. I shuddered involuntarily. Her eyes grew bright with expectation. I needed to use my emotional state as cover. I made sure my voice quivered. Was my father really still alive when Dodd took me from the wrecked car? I'm afraid so, Michael. I'm sorry. But right now, I need you to focus. Have you ever seen one of these? No. I blurted out with a ragged sigh. I've told you a million times. Da had nothing with him but the clothes on his back. Everything we had, we got by scavenging. I think she believed me, but her eyes still probed my face. Looking, I expect, for telltale micro-expressions in my facial muscles. If you're protecting his memory, I'm not protecting his memory, I protested, kicking the trash can in feigned frustration. The only thing I can remember is that one time he got drunk on whiskey and told me that a contagion will flare up periodically for at least a century. Their biological spores set like tripwires in both plant life and living organs from the initial infection. He called it a failsafe, but I didn't know what he meant. I thought it was just the whiskey talking. I lied. I patted the years of contamination. Made it an even century. That threw her off her game. She blinked rapidly, her micro-expressions revealing stunned surprise. Serve the bitch right. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. In the end, all the plans that I had put in place, from shorting out a transformer to overpowering one of the guards who habitually napped while on duty, to making a crude but effective pipe bomb weren't necessary. A diversion was all that was needed. Just before 9 p.m. on a full moon night, when the number of guards on shift reduced for overnight lockdown, I paged Dr. Rowland with a code she had given me. 411. Like I said, she told me to use it, 24-7, if I ever remembered something important, something she'd be interested to know. I'd never activated the pager before, so I predicted she'd respond immediately and not wait until morning. She did. I was expecting her to come to me, but instead she had me escorted to her office in the research wing for the very first time. You can go, she told the soldier. I'll bring Michael back to his quarters myself. She thought she knew me inside and out by now. She thought she'd hobbled me with her psychological scalpel. She didn't have a clue. My escort nodded and sauntered off. He considered me a non-threat. I'd repaired the break room toaster at his request just last week. We were buds. Have a seat, Michael. 
gesturing at a chair in front of her desk. Be with you in a sec. I wore my bulky winter's coat, which I didn't take off. She was tired. I could see that. I knew she worked long hours. And she was working now. Three computers were humming on her desk, statistical information scrolling down like numeric rain. I sat politely in my seat, like an obedient dog told to stay. It was a big office, with floor-to-ceiling windows looking out on a greenhouse atrium. Artistically lit, probably by a landscape designer. It allowed her to keep her office lights at a minimum. She jotted down some figures that appeared on the screen, used the mouse to scroll down, jotted some more. I might just as well be invisible. As moments passed, I let my foot jiggle nervously on my cross knee. I looked around like I didn't know what I should do, but I was canvassing for surveillance cameras. There were none. Research scientists enjoyed rare privacy in their private offices and quarters. Nine o'clock. Curfew for all non-essential personnel in red zones one and two. Three short blasts of the sirens in the yard indicating lockdown. To get back to my wing, I would need an escort the entire way. Like I said, my escort hadn't waited. No one was standing outside the office door. We were alone. I pictured Sergeant Brock, the nighttime surveillance watchman, a military lifer with the requisite steel-gray crew cut, leaving his post to get fresh coffee and to take a leak. He did this habitually, within minutes of the all-clear blast, which would sound next. I pictured him shuffling down the hallway, plucking at the seat of his uniform pants. I'm not a graveyard shift person, Mikey, he muttered to me more than once. Need my cup of joe to keep me going. My prostate don't like it, but what can you do? One one thousand, two one thousand. I didn't wear a watch and timing was everything. Three one thousand. The all clear blast sounded. I saw the photograph then, on the bookshelf among some artwork and collectibles. Frame. Pride of place. A young Dr. Roland, probably a fresh-faced grad student, standing with others just like her, all bending toward the same person in the center like tree shoots yearning toward the sun. The person was Da. He hadn't changed all that much from the time when I knew him. His beard was only streaked with gray back then, and his hair was cut short, but his long face was the same as ever, as were his eyes. The group stood in front of a building with a sign that read, VTB Laboratories. All of them had VTB insignia proudly displayed on their white coats. Da's little joke, virus, toxin, bacteria. I wonder if she'd been in on it. They'd worked together. She had been a colleague, a part of his team. That spun the possibility of what she was doing at FOB Far North 180 degrees in my mind. This was a recovery operation, not a post-mortem. Was Da's research lost in the fire at the research lab where he worked? I asked. This caused her to look up and regard me curiously. Why do you ask that, Michael? I waited, forcing my expression to appear bland and expectant. She sighed. Yes. The facility operated a closed network. So everything was lost. It was. And now you're trying to reverse engineer it. The formula. The bioweapon Dr. Sanborn invented. I couldn't help it. My tone had become hard-edged. She was startled, but she wasn't alarmed. Not yet. Michael. Do you know where Doc kept a copy of his research? Hope. I heard it chiming in the tone of her voice. If I did... I wouldn't tell you where it is. But I didn't say that. I didn't say anything. I lunged across the top of her desk and grabbed her by the collar of her white coat before she could press the alarm under her desk. I jerked her across the glass top, 
scattering the papers there. And in a matter of seconds, I had her pinned in my chair and secured with the plastic ties I'd stuffed in my parka pockets, both wrists and both ankles. Michael, she used a pleading tone. Now that I knew who she was, that she had been one of Dawes' admiring acolytes, one of his scientific co-conspirators, any reservations I might have had about subduing her drained away. I thought of the grand plan to reduce global population by transforming the impoverished into subhuman mutants, and my blood ran cold. It was obvious at that moment that the plan had not been abandoned in the wake of the environmental accident. Rather, the formula was all that was needed for it to be enacted again. I found the hard rubber ball gag in her desk and fitted it between her teeth and tightened the strap. I didn't want her to scream, or to call out, or to try to talk me out of what I was doing. I pulled her ID swipe badge off her neck. Her eyes grew wide, wordlessly pleading with me. I ignored her. Full access, red zone one. The highest rating there was. Though more stringent identification procedures were required to get onto the secured grounds of FOB far north, specifically retinal and fingerprint scanning along with the designated security code. Within red zone one, all that was required was a basic swipe badge. I quickly slipped into the hallway and down to the wing surveillance room. As I thought, Sergeant Brock was gone. He'd left the door open as usual, which was against the rules. Sixteen monitors, one trained on the hallway outside of Dr. Rowland's office. They'd know it was me when they reviewed the stored digital footage, but I didn't care. I only needed a little time. No going back now. In for a penny, in for a pound. I pulled a small bottle out from under my coat, took out the stopper, stuffed a rag inside, and lit it with a lighter I'd been fixing for one of the staff. I set the bottle on the table and took off down the hall toward the exit. I used Dr. Rowland's keycard to let myself outside. No alarm sounded. The explosion shook the building. I'm sure it disabled the cameras. I just hoped Sergeant Brock had still been in the men's room. Through the window slit in the door, I could see the fire sprinklers had activated. The door clicked behind me. Automatic lockdown containment protocol had been engaged inside. But I wasn't inside, I was outside. By the time they cleared the building, I would be gone. I flipped up my hood and hurried down the walkway toward the specimen laboratory and cages. I crouched in the shadows when I saw soldiers running up the road from the outer perimeter toward the offices in the research wing. Because of the blinding brightness of the fire, they weren't using their night vision. I'd been counting on that. Through another electronic gate, then another. Dr. Rowland had full unrestricted access to every inch of the facility. But I knew more than a swipe key was needed to enter the specimen internment camp. Specimens were considered classified, top secret. Not just anyone. Even those with Red Zone 1 access couldn't get near them. It took both the key card and a biometric scan to get inside the buildings, which is why I'd signed a girl earlier from my place behind the fence. Be outside tonight. She hadn't replied, but I know she saw me. Mutants were brought inside at night, unless they misbehaved badly. Then aversion punishment was employed. Punishment consisted of not being fed and of being locked outside in the cold. More than one had frozen to death. Such measures weren't considered drastic. They were considered a deterrent. A stern warning to uncooperative mutants. Whatever she'd done had worked. She was seated in her kennel, on the concrete, curled in a little ball, teeth chattering. I pulled out the wire cutters I'd hidden in my parka pocket, and within seconds had cut a hole big enough for her to crawl through. She was lethargic from the cold, so I had to pull her the rest of the way out. I took off my parka and wrapped her up inside of it. I pulled the hood up to cover her face. We didn't need to say anything. Come on, was all I whispered. The last part was what I worried about the most. 
getting through the gate into the contamination zone. What I had going for me was that the entire security system was one-sided, focused and designed to keep creatures from getting from the zone into the facility. No sane human was likely to be headed the other way. No outliers either, since they lacked the ability to reason a route to escape. They'd be more inclined to keep heading south, further into the grounds of the FOB. All the barricades to prevent unauthorized visitors from entering the FOB had been erected miles and miles away, at the opposite end of the base, in Blue Zone 5. We walked quickly, heads down, sticking to the shadows. Behind us, the fire had spread to the roof of the hallway housing the surveillance office. The fire detail had been mustered and had connected hoses to the hydrants. Pressurized water shot up into the air, but the fire had taken hold and it wasn't so easy to subdue. I was relieved to hear Sergeant Brock's gravelly voice in the background, shouting orders. We slowed a bit as we neared the gate. During an all-hands-on-deck emergency, figures moving quickly away from the direction of the fire would attract attention. The girl stayed behind me, in my wake, matching my gate stride for stride, so from the front it looked like I was alone. We went straight to the pedestrian gate where two guards were on duty. The first one relaxed when he saw it was me. He made the mistake of lowering his gun. It says Mikey, he told the other guard behind him. One of the mutants got free, I told him, feigned excitement in my voice. Did you see it? No. Before he could finish, I stuck the crackling and flashing electrodes of a homemade stun gun in the stomach and he went down like a brick, back arching, mouth slack. I had leaned over and unsnapped his pistol from his holster before the second guard could even step toward the doorway. I pointed it at his face, my finger on the trigger. Back up! He did. Girl used the zip ties in my pocket to secure the first guard's hands and feet and to take his automatic weapon. The pedestrian gate required a code to exit. Open the gate. You know I can't do that, Mikey. I'll shoot you. Then shoot me. I'm not opening the gate. Lower the weapon and we could talk about this. I pistol whipped him across the face and he fell backwards. Before he could even lift his head, I disarmed him. Stuck his pistol in the waistband of my jeans. I didn't like hitting him, but it was necessary. I signaled for girl to join me. She stepped into the light her violet skin luminous in the sodium glow. I indicated the stunned guard. She knelt beside him, cupped his chin in her hands, leaned forward and used her purple tongue to slowly, almost sensuously, lick the open cut on his cheek. He scooted back like he'd been snake bit. What the fuck? Why did it do that? She darted back behind me. Fresh mutant saliva in an open wound, I said, seething with bacteria. You know what that means, don't you? You feel that burning sensation? That's the contagion entering your bloodstream. The incubation period for the active virus is three minutes. That's all you've got. You either get an antidote injection, or you'll end up a mutant zombie in the specimen sector. That what you want? The sheer terror on his face made me pity him, but I kept the gun pointed at his forehead, and my voice cold. Dr. Rowland keeps an antidote syringe in her desk drawer. Open the gate, and I'll let you go. If you run, you can get to her office in less than a minute. You can save yourself from a fate worse than death. He staggered to his feet and punched in the authorization code to open the gate. As it swung open, I hit him hard across the back of the head, and he collapsed on the floor of the guard shack. I'd lied. Girl was years past the contagion stage. We slipped out the gate and ran, hand in hand. Girl dropped the automatic weapon. It was too bulky to carry. 
okay, so I guess when we all thought we were maybe done with shocking revelations and twists, Outliers throws another one at us. And this is one of my favorites whenever it shows up. It is the morally superior group turns out to be, in fact, morally kind of gray or reprobate. In this case, you have Dr. Roland, who's not like, we want to solve this problem. But Dr. Roland's like, hey man, you got any more of that virus, man? Also, props to the culmination of boys' long-term planning, both in terms of developing a homemade stunner, as well as some incendiary devices, and again, the uh, instilling himself in everyone's mind as, ah, it's just Mikey. Uh, so when the moment comes, he can get the slip on them and be like, oh, by the way, you might be infected. See ya, bye. All good plots, all well laid. And episode 10, the last episode of the season, it's right behind you. I'm not even joking, it's right there. I'm Neil Helligers. This is Adrenaline on Realm, and I will see you very soon for the last episode of Outliers. Take care. You're listening to Adrenaline Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. Cover art by Kendall Thomas and Michał Krasnopolski. Adrenaline is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Neil Helligers. Audio editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Marcus Begala. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Adrenaline by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.